You are listening to the Edu Salon podcast, a space for connection and conversation around education. Each episode, Dr. Deborah Nedelitsky talks with a global education thought leader to provide insights into where education is now and where it might move next. Hello, and welcome to the Edu Salon podcast, recorded on the lands of the Wadjuk people of the Noongar Nation, to whose elders, past, present, and emerging, I pay my respects. My name is Deborah Nettolitsky, and today I am thrilled to be joined by Vivian Porritt. Vivian has been an English and drama teacher and a secondary head teacher in England, Executive Director of the London Centre for Leadership in Learning, and Director for School Partnerships at University College London, as well as Chair of Governors. She's a TEDx speaker, a coach, and a founding fellow and vice president of the Chartered College of Teaching. She's currently a leadership consultant supporting school and academy leaders with professional learning and development, impact evaluation, vision, strategy, and women's leadership. She's one of the co-founders and global strategic leaders of Women Ed. Vivian's also the co-editor of the books 10% Braver, Inspiring Women to Lead Education, and Being 10% Braver. And she's also a chapter author in my book that I recently edited, Future Alternatives for Educational Leadership. Excitingly, she also recently received an OBE, an Order of the British Empire conferred by the Queen for services to education. Welcome, Vivian. Hello, hello. It's super to be with you, Deborah. Let's start the conversation. So my first question, as I think about that very busy and very impressive bio, is <laughs> of all of your achievements, of what are you the most proud? That, that's a really hard opening question. <laughs> I'm, I'm proud of all of them because they're all... Um, quite distinct whilst being complementary. Um, so I'm very proud to have been a head teacher. And, and given what we now know about women leaders and senior leaders, <laughs> very proud to have been a secondary head teacher, which um, is where there are definite gaps in England, certainly, and I think around the world. The thing I am the most, the thing I find the most joyous maybe maybe that's a, a good way of going, it is women ed, definitely, because it's just wonderful to be able to pay back the support I had as a woman leader in education and meeting the amazing women in our 40,000 strong global community is, is a real privilege. And I know we're making a difference. Impact is one of my professional areas which I explore significantly because I don't think we look at that enough in education. And so it is just wonderful to be able to see and articulate the impact that Women Ed is doing. And it's super to have you as one of our network leaders in Australia. Yes, it's great to be involved in that way. When you talk about impact, can you talk a bit more about what that means to you, impact in education and how you explore that in your work? Certainly in my experiences in England, but also as I've done work internationally, um, I find that in education we tend to talk about impact. We tend to assert impact. The teachers found this a really inspiring programme. And that's often quoted as impact. And, And it isn't really, because to me impact is about change and development. You and I are both passionate about professional learning and development, for example, and I think you only have impact from that, real impact, significant impact that brings about change when your own practice changes as a result of your learning. And that change in practice 
improves and stretches the experiences and the learning of our students. And that's a much more complex process than people appreciate. But if we can get hold of that and evidence that, which I help school leaders to do, it's a very, very powerful process because it actually lets us celebrate our successes without just rushing onto the very next thing. And I think that's missing for teachers and leaders in education. So I'm, I'm delighted to do that work. It's exciting. So there's sort of the, then an immersion or a, a slow look at evidence of impact rather than check boxes or quick accountabilities? Oh, absolutely. No tick boxes allowed. It's one of the slides I use where I'm just stopping, you know, crossing out every tick box opportunity there is. Um, I go a little bit further than that. I agree with the immersion, but it's immersion from the beginning because I've learned, um, particularly after reading a lot of Thomas Guskey's work, to me that the only way to be able to evidence the impact at the end of your improvement project is to be very clear on what you want that to look like from the very beginning. So having a clear baseline. In schools, we we can't all do four-year longitudinal analysis as universities can do. So we have to find a way to support practitioners to, to make a difference for the children and the teachers they work with now. Um, and I think after about 10 years of working on this, um, there is a way forward. And and that's the really exciting part, because not only does it give you evidence of impact, but it helps you create a a deeper, a greater impact than you thought possible. When I did my PhD on professional learning, one of the things that I found was that actually it was really that idea of transformation of practice was deeply connected to identity. So that if teachers wanted to change their practice, they, they actually had to change their beliefs about what was helpful for students. So I'm really interested in when you say that, you know, know your end point, so know what it is that you want to achieve uh, before you begin, how do you go about helping teachers or school leaders or schools to, to look at those things that they really actually want to see rather than those things that are easy to capture or easy to measure? Well, that that is the baseline um, and that's about an objective description of current practice and how you achieve that can be in many ways. One of my favourites that some of the schools I've worked on have done brilliantly is to see the establishment of a baseline for an individual teacher or for a team, for example, is achieved best by them all going round to look at each other's lessons and work or marking or whatever the issue is that they think needs improving. And then they all describe what they see, not what they don't see, not the deficits that are there, but what does current practice actually look like now? And that helps people to have a greater understanding of what they might want it to be, particularly when they've all looked at each other's practice because everybody is really good at something. And then they can bring together the range of practices there um, and together establish that end goal. In a year, in six months, we all together want it to look like this. And the evidence of achieving it will be. I often say to people doing that work that your, your picture of what the impact will be 
is like a blueprint that you would give me if I came into your classrooms or worked with your team in six months. And what you write down here is what I'm going to look for. So it has to be very clear. It has to be evidenced. It isn't about something that uh, that is too amorphous to be able to see because we do want to evidence the difference. Um, and, and that is a very empowering process if it's taken to those lengths. It's very positive and I just love working on it. And so you kind of work with people to come up with their future perfect that is really observable and not too far in the future but enough in the future to be able to achieve and they're doing that through collaboration through harnessing the expertise of their own colleagues and for looking for those sort of positive things and building on those for their specific context and their specific goals. Yes, that, that's my preference if they can do it collaboratively because we know that collaborative learning is a very powerful driver of effective professional learning and development. So, yes, that's, that's the greatest opportunity. And it sounds like it would build the, the positive culture and the self-efficacy of the staff at the school as well through that kind of an approach. Absolutely, a real learning culture that isn't, again, just tick box. (laughs) And so you said before that the thing that you're probably most proud of is that co-founding and probably then the development since then of of Women Ed. So that's a voluntary organisation that seeks to empower and connect existing and aspiring women leaders in global education. Can you talk about what Women Ed is, why it's actually needed and how it's evolved since you co-founded it in 2015? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Have we got several days? Um, <laughs> interestingly, when we first began with Women Ed, we could tell the story of Women Ed in about three minutes. Now it takes much, much longer because of the development. We, we, we started Women Ed simply because we wanted to give women a voice on Twitter because that was missing. And it really was as simple and as small as that. But as we started voicing that aim and the impact from that that we wanted to see things started to snowball and grow so we set up national we set up networks across england and we thought it would stop there and then other countries in the uk joined in then one of our current co uh, global strategic leaders liz free who i used to do some work with in england went to work in the Netherlands. So she said, what, what's this? Can, can we join in? And it had never occurred to us that would happen. And then gradually, particularly through a lot of Liz's brilliant connections, spread through Europe, to the US, to Canada, to Australia, and now also several networks in Malaysia. So actually, we only maybe have a couple of continents we're not on yet. So that will be a development goal for us and and it's just snowballed because it tells us that there is a significant need for women in education leadership to be seen to be heard for their voices to be listened to and for their abilities to be recognized and valued and that's across all aspects of education from nursery through to higher education Women are the majority of the workforce in all of those areas, and yet they are in a minority proportionate to the workforce in leadership roles. And women are not a minority. Um, We obviously also support 
minority groups within the female population, women with a diverse heritage, women with a disability, women who are part of the LGBT community. But together we are not a minority. And what we certainly want is representation in education according to the numbers of women in the workforce. So we've got a big goal there. But most importantly, women are gaining confidence, gaining the ability to share their successes, celebrate their successes, accept it if they fail, which is a huge thing for many women, all of us, huge thing, because it's been bred into us for millennia that, you know, we have to be perfect. And it's joyous to see women accepting that they don't have to be, and they can be themselves as authentic women who lead in education. And it's wonderful now to be able to write about that in lots of books such as yours. We've contributed to many chapters and we hope that's going to spread the word, word globally to those people who, shockingly, I understand, are still not on Twitter. I don't understand that. Who are those people? Um, I know. But if it encourages them to come to Twitter or encourages them to have a look at the Women Ed website, that would be wonderful. Because although we're all very proud of what we're achieving, there's still an awfully long way to go. So when you say there's an awfully long way to go, you know, there's lots of women in education. It's in some ways quite a feminised profession. Mm-hmm. So what what are those big gaps that you see still need to be addressed in terms of women and education and women in leadership in education? That's really a question about our four campaigns that we have in Women Ed. So one, as I said, is greater representation of women in leadership, and particularly in senior leadership. Many women are very dominant in middle leaders' roles, but for lots of reasons, um, one including being um, caring responsibilities, they are not represented proportionately as senior leaders or as principals or head teachers or in England now CEOs which is the next level that's being put in to ensure that women are not leading education that bits in brackets there really because that's an opinion so we also as I said want to support women from with diverse backgrounds so in Australia for you that would be your indigenous colleagues also for anyone with Anybody from a minoritised group, such as those with disability, I'm particularly concerned about that group as having had breast cancer for a period of time, I was deemed a woman with a disability. And, And I was shocked at the responses to me at that period, which were wholly different to how people approached me previously. So I'm, I'm very passionate about that aspect of the work. We want to advocate for flexible working practices because we think that will help women and more men with those caring responsibilities, that sandwich generation where you're still looking after your children and supporting your parents. And we also want to reduce the gender pay gap because that is shocking in education. Women Ed, in partnership with other organisations in England, have just released a report on the gender pay gap in education in in England. And we focused on the schools sector. 
And, and that is a really shocking example of what is happening to women. We didn't even know there was a gender pay gap. It, we just assumed it remuneration was equitable and fair, and, and it isn't. In England at the moment, the average gender pay gap between male and female head teachers, age 60 and above, is £17,000 a year. Wow. And of course, that affects pensions. So the issues we're tackling are not just we want more women to be leaders. They're really deep-seated, inequitable practices in our education system in England. And what we learn more and more through Women Ed is that these issues are the same all over the world. They may be different in terms of depth or intensity or for cultural reasons, but the issues are all the same. I also did some work over the last 18 months with people in Ethiopia who wanted to increase their representation of women as head teachers. Ethiopia in Africa has very deep-rooted cultural issues that divide men and women. But of all the head teachers in Ethiopia, only 11% are women. Now, that is a shocking inequality, and it stops effective, capable women from being able to support the next generation of women and children in Ethiopia. So that, those are examples of quite a, of quite a lot of things on the agenda. <laughs> wow. And the theme for International Women's Day is Break the Bias this yes. year. And you Fabulous. talked there about, about bias and about treatment of uh, marginalised groups, including women and women with other intersectional marginalisations. And so that theme talks about aiming for a world free of bias, stereotypes and discrimination that's diverse, equitable and inclusive and where difference is valued and celebrated. So do you want to talk a little bit more about what biases you think still exist in education and what steps can we actually be taking at different levels and in different spaces to address and overcome them? There are very, very many gaps. As I said about women with a disability, the second book that Women Ed wrote, which was published last Christmas, being 10% braver, has several stories in there from women with a disability or with a chronic period of illness and the struggle they had to be able to stay as a fully functioning, welcomed employee it is hard. And there's a super chapter there where one of our Women Ed England team, who is a head of school in England, gives advice to all school leaders about what is needed to support women with a disability. And, and unlike the other aspects, we don't actually know the data because disability, in the same way as sexual orientation, um, is very often unseen because there are hidden, invisible disabilities. And if we can't know the issue and we can't have the data, we don't know how best to to work on it and treat it and, and develop and improve it. So I think one of the gaps is a data gap at the moment, globally. We don't have a nuanced or an evidence picture of what the marginalised groups need. In England, for example, only 0.1% of head teachers have a Bangladeshi background. And yet the Bangladeshi community in England is significant. So 
as soon as you know that data, you can start to plan and address a way of working and responding. So I think globally, there's a significant lack of data. Do, do you know the gender pay gap in education in Australia? Uh, it is certainly there. Uh, I look it up each year near International Women's Day and have a look at, you know, what are the what are the figures saying this year around the place? And it certainly still exists because I get questions about, as you might, you know, why do we need International Women's Day? Why do we need Women Ed? Um, aren't we past all this conversation? Can't we just move on? So I often have to, I don't know the figures off the top of my head. And, you know, you talk about those in your chapter for my book and in the Women Ed books specifically in England, but it's definitely something that continues to exist and those systemic inequities that you talk about are beyond the capacity of the individual. But the tagline of Women Ed is 10% braver, mm-hmm. which is something that individuals have been taking on as they share their stories and as they apply sort of Women Ed values and principles in their own careers and in their own professional lives. What, where did that come from and what 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 does it mean and, and why do you think it's it's taken off with so many women around the world? It came from our very first event that Women Ed did in England, which is where it started. And we had a woman called Sue Cowley as our guest speaker to, to open the day for us. Um, Sue is a well-known author in England and um, internationally. And she focuses on supporting new colleagues to the profession. Um, she's also incredibly funny. <laughs> so we thought it was an absolutely brilliant combination for a very first event. And and she, the advice she offered us came from something her best friend had said to her, which was, Sue was saying, you know, I'm in front of all these women. I haven't met most of them. I'm actually more nervous than for other things I do. And she said, just be 10% braver, Sue. And so Sue said she'd like to pass that on to us. And she wanted to close her session by reading the Helen Reddy poem, I am woman, hear me roar. And she started it. (laughs) And somebody, i.e. me, shouted from behind her, 10% braver, so you should sing it. Now the woman, poor woman's like me, neither of us should ever sing in public ever. But she did. And that moment resonated so much with everybody um, in a very simple way that it was hard but she did it and at the end of it we all felt really good about what had happened and we think it's a little piece of magic because it's gradually resonated with more and more women in particular although we see lots of tweets with 10% braver in and know that this person Um, or man, has no connection with women at all. So it's got a life of its own, which is great. But why we think it is magic is because for women who are nervous of failure or rejection and, and don't want to have to deal with that, all they have to do is take one step forward, try something out in a small way. And then when they do and can feel how good that is, then they can move forward another step and another step. And what we also do now is ask people to tell us when they've been 10% braver. And the whole women-led community just erupts with congratulations and applause and asking them what they did and how did that work and what they were going to do next. And it usualizes a woman demonstrating 
just a little bit of bravery or courage. And we know that courage calls to courage. So it 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 is in becomes endemic then within the community. Um, and sometimes people say, I'm going to be 10% braver today, and they leave it there. And we always go, can you not tell us in what way? And gradually, gradually, they've stopped doing that. And they just celebrate it, that they might fall flat on their face. But actually, the important thing is that they are being just that little bit braver, which is why both our books take that mantra, because it's it's central to the the feelings of value that women need to have in themselves. It comes back to that one of the first comments you made about perfectionism and it makes the the next step manageable. So rather than having to do it all or do it 100%, it's just, as you say, that one manageable step that you're asking people to challenge themselves with and then the snowball of um, a bunch of people all being a bit braver and then encouraging one another that, you know, it's okay. And do you have stories as well of people who have tried and it didn't work and that they still share those vulnerabilities with the community? Oh, yes, definitely, because people are starting to realise that the most important thing is that they are moving forward, even if it's only in the way they're thinking. In being 10% braver, there's a, a super chapter from two of our United States network leaders where they both met together doing a, um, an ED, an educational doctorate, and they explored their feelings of the work that they needed to accept that what they were doing was a big step and a good thing and that their learning was important and that they were as able as other women <laughs> in the group to be doing the qualification and they, they talk about failing forward, which I think is a super phrase. So failure is like They talked about imposter syndrome there as well, feeling like yes, perhaps they yeah. weren't the ones that should be in the room. Uh-huh. And failing forward is, well, I might feel like that now, but if I keep staying in the room and I keep accepting that I'm in the room, then gradually I will be able to overcome that concern or that fear. So... So we don't talk of failure anymore. We talk of failing forward, which I think is a really terrific mindset to have. And what advice would you give to individual women educators in, I'm thinking about school settings, who might be wanting to get their first leadership opportunity or might be in a leadership position wanting to go to the next level, whether that's senior leadership or head to, headship? What things should they be considering to, to get themselves ready or to position themselves for their next step? I think I'd like to go back to the comments we made earlier about impact because I think the first thing to do is to be very clear on your own success up to now in readiness for moving forward Um, and not just to assert that success um, but to own it and say I, not we. There are lots of times when it's so important to be collaborative But applying for a job is where you want to put your best self forward. I often liken it and ask people if I'm coaching them in this area to say, what do you do if your in-laws come round to your house? No matter how much you love them, what do you do? And they always rightly say, well, I'll tidy up first. So yes, you shove things in cupboards and you put your best foot forward. So that's what you need to do in preparing to apply for something. 
I read lots of letters where women are basically saying everything they're not good at. So we have to change the narrative, change the language and put our best foot forward. So what are your strengths? What have that what has that enabled you to do in your organization? What is the evidence of impact you have? And what will you bring to the new role? What are the issues in that school they want to improve and develop? And what would you do, therefore, to help them using the skills that you have? Change the language, focus on impact, and tell them what why they need you. Rather than doing it the other way around, write a letter that says, this is what I've got, this is what I can offer, and this is why you need me. And So, so what are you bringing and what are you going to contribute? Yes, absolutely, but in a very evidenced way, not an asserted way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say that because if you can write an application like that, you've already put all your answers to most interview questions in your application and you know them and you can elaborate further then with answers to the questions. And and that seems to be working for a lot of women. I, I was then asked to do a video, a women-ed video about exactly that question. So that's on Women-ed's YouTube channel, how to write an application that gets results. And then also because when women are successful, there's still quite a few challenges before they take up the role, which includes negotiation on things that are important to them, such as salary or working patterns. So there's a negotiation video on there as well, because it's a really easy thing to do. There are set rules that everybody knows. It's just that internal fear of not being liked that stops women doing it. So let's have a go because it, it's easy and it works. And once you succeed, it's the best feeling in the world. And do you think that the current situation in the world, I'm thinking about the pandemic and the way that governments and school leaders and system leaders have had to lead, do you think that anything has changed in what people are looking for in leaders? I hope so. <laughs> I really do hope so. There's a lot of a lot, there are a lot of articles and research out there about how the business community is changing. Four-day working week in more countries, much more hybrid working, much more flexibility. And I am concerned if education ignores those developments. We may have certain strictures around timetables that, that need addressing. But we're an intelligent, very intelligent group of people in education. And if we put our minds to it, we can find ways around that. We have several schools in England successfully employing a four-day working week for individuals. So the sky's the limit on what could be possible. And, And I really hope education grasps the metal and does some experimentation in the future. Thank you. So we're coming to the end of our time together. And so I'm going to move to the final five questions of our quick fire, what I'm calling the enlightening round. Uh, So firstly, what's something unexpected that many people might not know about you? This is one I'm not sure of. I'm really not sure of at all. Because on the whole, my life's been quite a 
open you sh- book. You and... share your story a lot. Yes. What about, I, what about listeners who haven't, you know, watched your TED Talk and read your articles? What might be something from this conversation that people wouldn't necessarily know from your, from your bio or from the work that you do in education? Well, in terms of my TEDx talk and education, I, I came from a very working class family um, in England, in the northeast of England, which is a more deprived area of the country, and w- was a clever girl <laughs> and passed what we call the 11 plus that was in existence then. So I went to a, a grammar school rather than a secondary modern. England was very elitist then and just hides its elitism a little bit more nowadays. But I was clever um, and my parents really didn't know how to deal with that. I used to get told off for reading books and told to go outside in the sun. And I went to university, was the first in my family to do so. My family still didn't really understand what it was, but they understood I was very proud of that. So off I went. And I became an English and drama teacher. And and then my, my final paid role in that sense, formally paid, was at the Institute of Education in London, which is a preeminent education university. So I'm very proud and people might not know of the some of the difficulties there. My mum was mentally ill at a time when that was a stigma. Oh, it still is to a certain extent, but it was very much a stigma then, and you we didn't talk about it. Nobody talked about it. We just suffered it. She had schizophrenia and paranoia, and at times it made upbringing non-existent. So having come from a difficult background, I think that's why I wanted to teach, because I wanted to help children like me know that they could succeed and that other people were looking out for them. And that's why in the TEDx talk, I I talked about normal is a setting on a washing machine, because none of us are normal. I hate that word, really hate it. None of us are normal. We're we're all unique, and, and I really hope people look to see the ways in which they are unique and, and celebrate it. Thank you. So you went from being in trouble for reading books to writing books yourself. I like that. <laughs> that I like that oh, cycle. That's a super way to describe it. I may steal that now. <laughs> oh, go for it. Um, what Can you tell us something that's currently on your desk? Piles of things. Um, I'm quite a messy worker. Um, I've still got my Christmas books that I haven't started to read yet I've always got um the women ed book being 10% braver there because as I'm writing and I was um writing a chapter yesterday I'm taking quotations from it photographs of my nieces and nephews and their families and so who is someone that inspires you in your work it's a woman in England and it's Alison Peacock Dame Alison Peacock Mm -hmm who's CEO of the Chartered College of Teaching. Um, She is on a personal mission and taking us all with her to ensure that education in England and, well, in the UK is re-professionalised. I know there's no such word as that, really. Um, But she is leading the development of the college as the professional body for teaching in the UK and globally, very many people with who've trained in England but are working abroad are, are members of the college also 
and she has an indominant determination to improve education um, for all of us working in it and for children. I'm delighted to be Vice President of the Chartered College, which is an elected position. And if I've got one minute, I'll tell you a 10% Rover story on that in a moment. But she is wonderful to work with, totally inspirational for all teachers. And I'm completely in awe of her when I hear her explaining why the college is so important and the value and the power of teachers. What, what's your uh, 10% braver story? I applied to be a founding fellow of the Chartered College when it started because I wish we'd had something like that when I was a teacher. But I didn't tell anybody I'd applied in case I didn't get it. Um, and I did get it and I celebrated that. Um, but then I thought, actually, that's that's totally not being 10% braver to not tell anyone. So when there was an opportunity to stand for election to the council as a vice president, I put it out on Twitter. I'm being 10% braver and I'm put standing for election. And I was so nervous to do that. And it reminded me what it can feel like when you mm. aim for something that you think may be beyond your reach. But if you're really, really brave in that way, um, things can come to you, as, as I was very excited to be elected to that position. I think the women ed community might have had a bit of a hand in that. Oh, it's our version of the old story. Our version of the old boys club. <laughs> well, you'll be interested to know that uh, just recently uh, a very prestigious Australian men's club uh, voted about whether or not it would increase include women and they voted no they won't <laughs> continue to be a men's club uh but what, what's one thing that you have coming up that you're excited about well we haven't made this very known really but um women Ed have applied to be a charity in england which would have global status then and it was it's quite a quite an exhausting application form to fill in especially when a lot of it isn't necessarily phrased in the way that a group of volunteers can contribute to or sometimes they say you know well what does your name mean and I'm kind of like saying well it's a hashtag <laughs> no, that's not quite what the charity commission might be looking for um, so I think we've got another month yet to wait until our application is successful hopefully but that that will give us greater reach with other organizations with which to collaborate and we hope funding for some exciting projects. And I am looking forward to going to a palace to meet a member of the royal family and receive my OBE. I'm so excited that, that about is that. Amazing. Uh, when does that happen? I don't know because there's a long um, waiting list for because it has, wasn't able to happen during COVID. So um, it could be quite a while. But um, I'm still looking forward to it. I think that's allowed to be a highlight. Uh, and my final question to you is that if you were to distill your current thinking about education to its essence, what's one thought or, or resource that you'd leave listeners with? I'm going to steal a thought and a resource if I can. I dip into regularly Caroline Criado Perez's book, Invisible Women, and I just wanted to leave people with this thought. The gender data gap is both a cause and a consequence 
of the type of unthinking that conceives of humanity as almost exclusively male. And she writes an enormous book on all of the examples of that. So we need to conceive of humanity as being a shared endeavour between men and women and, and look to work to put that into practice in very many small and big and significant ways. And as a resource, I'd like to leave everybody with the Women Ed website because it's really growing and developing and any further questions about Women Ed would be answered there. And that's womened.org. And it would be lovely for people in your listening community to join in worldwide. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Vivian, for joining me today on the Edgy Salon. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Always do talking about myself. <laughs> and I don't think we've spoken, well, maybe we have on a Zoom once, but um, not often have we spoken uh, in mm. face-to-face, even if even mm. online. It's, uh, it's mostly been through Twitter. So uh, it's been great to have this conversation with you. And with you, Deborah. Absolutely wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Fabulous. Thank you for listening to the Edu Salon podcast. You can join the conversation by subscribing to this podcast and sharing it with your network, by giving this podcast a rating or review, and by connecting with Deb and her guests on social media.